Half-Price Horror. Hello, and welcome to Half-Price Horror, where we get our terror at a discount and pass the savings on to you. I'm your host, John. This is the inaugural episode of the podcast, and for this first episode, we'll be looking at 1979 film The Brood by director David Cronenberg. I originally thought I'd be doing a lot of talking about the roots of body horror, but then I watched the movie, and as always, my thoughts changed. But before we get into a deep dive into The Brood, I figured, since this is the very first episode, that I would talk a little bit about myself and my connections to horror. Horror has been a part of my brain since almost the beginning of its formation. I remember as a child at the age of two, no, three, because it was 1978, I was born in 1975, which was a big year for horror, part of a big sequence of horror, a big horror boom, as it were, uh, and right on the cusp of the video revolution. But in 1978, I didn't know any of that, and the VCR hadn't come out yet, at least not in serious quantities. I remember we took a trip to Boston, and we went to the beach, and I wouldn't go out into the water because I was afraid of sharks. I hadn't seen Jaws, but at that time you did not really need to have seen Jaws to be terrified of sharks. Jaws was everywhere in the pop culture, and I was an imaginative child, and imaginative child children are easily frightened. And I was no exception. I remember being scared of a lot of things back then. I was scared of Raiders of the Lost Ark, although, in fairness, it is a movie where people's faces melt off. I kind of feel like I was a little bit justified in that. But I remember the first horror movie I saw was The Blob. As I said, the VCR had just recently become a thing. By the time I saw it, I would have been about five or six. And my parents thought, well... Let's rent the blob. They remembered it as a campy classic. My dad was always enamored of old sci-fi movies. And the overlap between old sci-fi movies and old horror movies was pretty strong. And I watched it, and it terrified me. I had nightmares for weeks. It convinced my parents that I was probably not going to be someone who should watch a lot of horror movies. And... They were never very attentive to what I was watching, but I certainly understood that I wasn't going to be requesting horror movies anytime soon from a very young age. But again, this was a huge horror boom era. This was the era of The Thing. This was the era of Friday the 13th. This was the era of Halloween. This was the era of Nightmare on Elm Street. You could not exist in the 1980s without being aware of horror. It was also the golden age of sneaking into the movies. Uh, I would hear frequently from kids on the playground about R-rated horror movies, and certainly I'm sure some of them were making it all up, but my memories of their recollections of horror movies tracked with what I later watched, so everyone was watching horror. I knew about Nightmare on Elm Street movies almost right as soon as they came out. So I guess you could say that I lived my childhood not as a horror fan so much as horror-adjacent. I 
couldn't rent a horror movie, but I would look at the videotape covers to all of the classic horror movies and study the images, which were, you know, this was the early era of video covers. Frequently they bore no resemblance at all to what was on the inside. They were often very surreal. The box art was very strange looking. I also would go to the bookstore and look at the horror novels, which if you've uh, never seen horror novels from the 80s, there's a wonderful book called Paperbacks from Hell by Grady Hendrix, which is devoted to all of the lurid, die-cut, foil-embossed glories of the 80s horror novel in all its trashy wonder. It is well worth reading. It's, it's lovely. And I watched lots of, and read, lots of things about horror. I loved books where they showed pictures of old sci-fi horror movies and talked about when they came out and what they were about and reading summaries and descriptions. I, I think the first Stephen King book I ever read was Dance Macabre because it was the only one that wasn't scary. And it did kind of prepare me for, you know, my degree in literary criticism because King's Dance Macabre is in a lot of ways, a college 101 course on the horror genre, on the supernatural and horror in literature. When I eventually did my senior thesis on the gothic novel, I wound up using a lot of the things I'd learned in Dance Macabre. It was, it was a very useful book in that regard. And I watched horror documentaries. I remember Terror in the Isle, uh, Isles, I think, uh, which was a very cheesy horror clip show hosted by Donald Pleasance and Nancy Allen where they showed clips of horror movies like Scanners and The Thing and then talked about why would we want to watch these horrifying, horrifying things because they are so horrifying. And eventually I began to slowly close in on horror to the point where I could finally watch horror movies edited for television on the old UHF stations. And there was something very peculiar about watching horror that was curated, watching movies that were curated, but not curated in a deliberate manner. This wasn't like the Criterion Collection or some, you know, shutter horror collection of the best of, of Japanese horror, the best of you know, slasher movies. This was essentially someone going, what can we get for cheap and what will get people interested? So you'd watch these shows. I remember in our neighborhood, it was uh, the, the official horror film that they showed every Saturday night was Horror Incorporated. I'm not going to say that that inspired the theme song, but it totally inspired the theme song for this podcast. And there were also regular random movies. I saw Them, the movie with the giant ants. I saw Frankenstein, Dracula, The Thing, Invasion of the Body Snatchers, The Day the Earth Stood Still. And eventually, as these things do, we got to see some of the newer movies. I remember seeing Nightmare on Elm Street 2 on UHF stations. 
And it was all just so random. During October, it was just a festival of horror. You could tune in every night and get a choice of three or four different horror movies, and that was amazing. Because this was an era, again, right on the cusp of the video revolution, certainly before you could buy horror movies, very certainly before you could simply dial one up on your computer and have it appear within minutes, there was a lot that I tiptoed into horror about. Probably the most overtly horrific experience, to be honest, was Doctor Who, which this was the Tom Baker era, and Tom Baker era Doctor Who rivaled pretty much any Hollywood production for sheer pound-for-pound scares. Try watching The Seeds of Doom, where the Doctor explains, yep, we're just going to have to saw this man's arm off in the middle of the Antarctic with no access to doctors or medical facilities, because it's better than the alternative of what he's going to turn into. That's creepy. Anyway, so the next big horror milestone I can recall was when I was age 10, and I went over to a sleepover that I had at a sometimes friends. You know how you have those friends who are sometimes friends and they're sometimes assholes and you kind of get along with them on the good times and then things fall apart completely on the bad times? This was one of those friends. And I went over and he had somehow convinced his mom to let him rent Return of the Living Dead at age 10. And that movie left a mark on me. It's actually sitting over on the end of my bed next to the TV I keep in my bedroom. It is still, I think, one of the best horror movies I've ever seen. It's one of my favorite horror movies of all time. It's one of my favorite movies. But at age 10, it was beyond terrifying. It left a mark on my brain like a hand being pushed into wet concrete. I remember specifically that by the end, I could not look at the screen. I could not watch the movie. I listened to the last 10 minutes. And to this day, I can remember how I thought it ended. What it actually ends with is... Okay, this is the point where I mentioned this is going to be an immensely spoiler-heavy podcast. I'm going to be trying to do a critical analysis of a lot of these movies, at least a structural analysis of a lot of these movies. I'm going to be talking about the endings. So we'll just start right here, and if you aren't interested in that, this is a good place to stop because I'm about to reveal the ending of Return of the Living Dead. In the ending of Return of the Living Dead, the military just nukes the city blows it up to contain the zombie invasion. But what they don't know is that the zombie uh, poison toxin uh, that, that they've created spreads when aerosolized by burning. It's not destroyed. The zombies themselves are, but the compound just spreads. And in the actual movie, you hear a voiceover of the general explaining that they've contained the situation while they replay the scene of the zombies bursting out of the graveyard from the earlier part of the movie. And it's it's a cromulent ending. It's not 
a great ending. It is clearly a, we really don't quite know what visual should go with this. So let's just replay the zombies bursting out of the grave because we put a lot of effort into that scene. But in my head, it all took place back in the general's mansion that had been shown at the beginning of the movie. And the general was talking on the phone. And behind him, at the window, slowly, the protagonists of the film, who had all been killed in the nuclear blast, were closing in. And their faces were still recognizable, but their bodies were badly burnt by radiation. They were charred corpses, shambling closer and closer, pressing their faces against the window, while the general, oblivious, continued to insist that everything was all right. And that taught me some valuable lessons. One, I've got a pretty good imagination, if I do say so myself. Two, it is always worse to imagine a horror movie than it is to see one. And I don't think that that changed me too much, but I think it did make me a little bit braver. After that, I remember watching more horror movies. I never, again, I never rented them when I was a child or even a teen. I would find ways to sneak up on them, like watching them on UHF television in a room where my parents weren't, or... We had a neighbor who had HBO, and they would record movies to VHS on the old EP setting, which allowed you to record six hours of tape. So they would record about three movies per tape. And I remember very distinctly that I would find ones that had one movie like 2010 that you could watch and that you could say you were watching if your parents wanted to know why you wanted that videotape. And then you would actually watch something like Creepshow. And that was how I watched a lot of my early horror movies. Um, I also read a lot of Stephen King because it was the 80s and every household was required by law to own no less than 20 pounds worth of Stephen King volume, uh, volumes by weight. I remember reading It most of all because It daunted me, not even so much because of the scares as the size. I was probably 11 or 12, and I could not imagine plowing through a 1,200-page novel. So I took it mostly as a series of short stories. I started with the short story of Little Georgie Denbro's death, and then I read the short story of Adrian Mellon's death, and then I read the short stories of the introductions of all of the adult characters. And very, very gradually, sometimes rereading those, I worked my way through that book. And I, I remember I read King pretty consistently right up through Gerald's Game. Something about Gerald's Game, I think, just turned me off so bad that I didn't go back to him for years afterwards. But that was much later, and in college I found a video store nearby where I could rent horror movies for a dollar. This was kind of positioning itself as the anti-blockbuster, anti-blockbuster uh, video for those who remember when that existed. 
had this thing where they would make sure the new releases were always in stock. They even guaranteed it at one point. And they would do this by just having their shelves packed with 40 copies of whatever the latest Hollywood blockbuster to hit video was. And everything else was sold off cheap. Which meant that if you wanted to buy used videotapes, you could usually get a pretty good deal on some cool videos if you just went to Blockbuster at the right time. But this store did the opposite. It had almost no new releases, and it had tons of vintage horror. I saw the original Night of the Living Dead, I saw the original Halloween, I saw the original Nightmare on Elm Street, I saw the original Friday the 13th, the original Texas Chainsaw Massacre, and a lot of the time, what those made me feel wasn't necessarily fear so much as sadness, sort of mournful sympathy. It changed my view of horror. I no longer thought that horror was necessarily something scary as it was another art form or another genre. It was, it was just another interesting genre, and... I liked it, and I've been watching it ever since. And now that you know a little bit about me, let's get into The Brood. The Brood is the third feature film from uh, horror director David Cronenberg, who is still active today, although not doing as much horror as he used to. Like Sam Raimi, he's moved on to other genres and become fairly respectable as such things go. But at this point in his career, he'd done Shivers, which was, for its time, very, very shocking. It, For those of you who aren't familiar with it, it was basically about a sexually transmitted venereal disease that turned people into, and there is no other way to uh, say this, sex zombies. And he directed Rabid, which was a movie about a young woman who gets an experimental surgery done on her that turns her into a sort of vampire who made zombies through transmission of bodily fluids. So again, he's he's already got this preoccupation with body horror. He's got this preoccupation with sex as, as risky and dangerous. He's got a preoccupation with sexual violence. And the thing that was very controversial about these early films was that he was a Canadian director, and Canada very wonderfully has fought the cultural imperialism of America by funding movies, music, television, making sure that they mandate a certain amount of Canadian content. If you talk to any Canadian person, you'll know about what CanCon is on their TV stations and uh, in their radio stations. And so they funded these films which, when those films came out, caused no small amount of shock, because they are viscerally horrifying. Cronenberg's approach to body horror was like nothing anyone else had ever seen before. It was very intense. His films were emotionally intense, too. They were just really unlike anything anyone had ever seen before. And... 
people were freaked out by them. And as far as they were concerned, it was not something the Canadian government should be funding. A lot of people were of the opinion it was not even something that should be released in Canada, let alone made with the cooperation of the Canadian government. So into this, in 1979, he releases The Brood, his third movie. It stars Oliver Reed, who is probably most famous now for his one of his last roles. He was in Gladiator, but he'd been in a few other things. He was a fairly famous character actor, as was Samantha Egger, who is the other leading role, who's probably most famous for a wonderful horror movie called The Collector, in which she acts opposite the legendary Terrence Stamp. The book is very good. It's a book that gets into the head of a budding serial killer as he takes the fateful actions that are going to lead to his string of murders. The movie can't get inside his head, but it does a wonderful job with the dynamic between the two lead characters. Egger and Stamp had apparently dated in college and it had ended awkwardly, and the director knew this and used it to make this sequence more realistic. The third major character is Art Hindle, a, again, a, a veteran character actor. He's got hundreds of roles, most notably probably Porky's, The Black Christmas, sorry, just Black Christmas, Invasion of the Body Snatchers. So these are, these are not famous actors, these are not A-list actors, but they are very talented, creative character actors, and... So the the quality of the acting, and okay, I am going to briefly pause here to say the quality of the acting is kind of a meaningless term. Just like the quality of the special effects, the quality of the script, the quality of the direction, things are not good or bad in a vacuum. They're good or bad based on the criteria we apply to them. In this case, when I say the quality of the acting is really high, what I mean is the actors are naturalistic, they deliver emotional intensity that seems to be appropriate for the scene, what a person who was not an actor would deliver in this actual situation. And they do that convincingly. That is not always what good acting has meant. There have been many, many times in our history where dramatic acting meant emotion in volume. If you were to go back in time 300 years and watch a play, you would find the acting to be intolerably hammy, but this was just what people expected back then. They were acting for the person in the back row. Silent film acting, it's a form of mime. They're conveying all of their emotions through body language. You don't necessarily want to apply the current standard for acting, or special effects, or screenwriting, or directing, or anything, to something that you watched that was made 50 years ago, because it's not really what they were going for. Okay, lecture over. <laughs> so the point is that there's, these are some really talented character actors who are just doing a good job with their part. And 
the movie begins. It is already David Cronenberg's The Brood. We're three movies in, and he is pretty much applying to himself the same standard that Hitchcock did for his thrillers. Although, in this case, probably with more justification, because Cronenberg did write the screenplay for this. Uh, speaking of Hitchcock, the music is so psycho. It, it sounds like someone just played the psycho soundtrack to the composer and said, more of this, please. And that's not bad, but it is very, very noticeable. It opens with Oliver Reed's Dr. Hal Raglan and one of his patients, Mike, and they are having this very strange conversation. At first, you think they might be performing some sort of a weird avant-garde play, because there's a whole audience of people in the room watching them have this conversation, but it slowly becomes obvious that it's a form of psychotherapy. Mike has some issues with his father. Hal Raglan is acting out the role of his father and saying the things that his father would say. And this is where we begin to get a hint of the themes that are going to come out in this particular movie. Because on the one hand, certainly Raglan is not saying nice things. The whole point is that Mike has a lot of issues with his father. His father hurt him very badly emotionally. And he is saying hurtful things on purpose. So it's not like Raglan is endorsing Cronenberg's point of view with this scene. On the other hand, Cronenberg could have delivered any kind of negative father message. He could have had this character be emotionally distant in any number of ways. He could have had him be smothering. He could have had him be toxic in a million different ways. But what he specifically chose was the idea that Dad keeps calling Mike Michelle and saying that he's weak and that the weakness would have been acceptable if he was a woman, so he's going to treat him like a woman from now on. And this is setting up the idea that being compared to a woman is harmful, that being compared to a woman is dangerous, that being compared to a woman is damaging, and that should a man be treated like a woman, it will cause lasting psychological harm because it's so demeaning. Now, this is not a category error. This is not, Mike is not a trans man who is upset that he is being dead named by his father. This is plain and simple dad saying, women are lesser than men and you are lesser, so I will refer to you as a woman, and Raglan more or less saying, yeah, that's the sort of thing that would really damage you. I, a masculine man shouldn't be compared to an effeminate woman. And it's really awkward, and it does kind of set the tone for a lot of what we're going to see. It also sets the tone in another important way, because Mike 
opens up his shirt to, re- to demonstrate a number of psychosomatic welts that have appeared all over his skin, physical manifestations of his emotional pain, and they get worse as the conversation goes on. The, the cut over to Hal, when they cut back, Mike's got worse and worse and worse welts. As they're showing this sequence, Frank, the protagonist, walks in, sits down in the audience, watches it all. Eventually, Mike comes through to some sort of a catharsis from all this. He falls weeping into the arms of Raglan. The the audience files out. Everyone appears to be very impressed with this as a piece of therapy. Even though, as we find out later, Mike is not cured of anything. And this feeds into a lot of fears at the time. This was the late 70s. It was a period where a lot of people were doing new age therapies, inventing new types of therapy. There were a lot of people who were turning to their therapists to an increasing degree, and many were beginning to feel to an unhealthy degree. There's The most famous example is probably Brian Wilson of the Beach Boys, who had a nervous breakdown and couldn't compose for a long period of time, couldn't face the world for a long period of time because of all of the stuff that was going on in his life. And the rest of the band, either in an attempt to help him if you're feeling charitable or in an attempt to get him back producing music for them, if you're not, hired a therapist named Eugene Landy, who charged an exorbitant amount of money to medicate the living hell out of Brian Wilson and make him dependent on Landy for every decision. There are periods during that time where he would be in interviews and he would stop mid-sentence and look to Landy for approval, or for more pills, and people started to get the idea that maybe you could become unhealthily dependent on a therapist, and this is one of the fears that Cronenberg is playing on here, and a lot of what you see in horror movies is it's not just the basic things you're scared of. You know, yes, we are all scared of someone who has an axe and is going to drive it through our skull because that will kill us. That's a very basic fear and it's very sensible. But the horror movies that tend to be remembered tend to find something something more than that, something more to hang their hat on. Nightmare on Elm Street isn't just a fear of having yourself slashed with razor blades. It's a fear of child abductions, it's a fear of child molestation, it's a fear of criminals escaping the criminal justice system. There are any number of things that come out in a good horror movie. And again, good. Subjective term. But in a horror movie that people have strong emotional responses to. We'll put it that way. So, Frank as we find out, is at this institute, which, by the way, is the Soma Free Institute of Psychoplasmics. And that's a really, really wonderful piece of world building. It's just four words. You see it painted on the side of a bus as people are coming to the institute and departing from the institute. But it tells you so much about this world. Soma 
It comes from the book Brave New World by Aldous Huxley. It is the drug that they use to pacify the populace by keeping them in a state of doped-up, indolent happiness. So, Soma-free, he is saying, Raglan is saying, that if you take his therapy, you will be awakened from this indolent lethargy that has kept you numb. And psychoplasmics, it's a word that doesn't really exist, but it's a word that evokes images of ectoplasmic, the substance of that spiritualists claim to be able to manifest, so you're already beginning to think of thoughts manifest into physical form. There's a lot of foundation for this in Buddhism, which the the spiritualists just blatantly stole, let's be honest. And in general, Cronenberg is evoking a number of ideas of manifesting thoughts as flesh in order to free yourself from the programming of the world all without ever having to say that explicitly. It's a genuinely wonderful book there. But Frank is at the Institute, the Soma Free Institute, to pick up his daughter Candace, who's a cute little blonde moppet of six, and she is so solemn and serious in every scene that you can just immediately tell Something is very wrong. This kid is not happy. This kid cannot imagine being happy. This kid is just ground down by six. It's rough. And Candace is there for the weekend, visiting Frank's wife, Nola. They're separated. Frank still refers to his wife, not ex-wife. That's significant. And... He is not allowed to see Nola. She is under some sort of intensive therapy for some sort of unspecified issues related to her childhood abuse at the hands of her mother. They don't go into it, and that is a big problem point with the movie, is Nola's mental health issues are very much othered. Nola is treated as someone who is dangerous, who is threatening, the grounding in the mental health issues she has, the information that we get about it, is all merely there to provide verisimilitude, not sympathy. We are not supposed to sympathize with Nola. It is made very clear from the way that all of the sequences with her and the all of the sequences discussing her are framed. And that's, that is not a good thing. Uh, Mental health is a serious issue. People with mental health issues are unfairly demonized in pretty much every media. This is a particularly bad example. And this is, there's a lot of, of spirit of the times happening here. There's a lot of what they call zeitgeist in German, which is spirit of the times. Because no-fault divorce had been legalized in Canada in 1968, so about 10 years before this movie started, and a lot of social ills were bubbling up to the surface. A lot of marital difficulties were coming out because, for the first time, women could get a divorce from someone who was awful to them without having to prove in court that they were awful to them. And... 
the divorce rate temporarily exploded because for the first time people could get out of these terrible marriages. And a lot of people felt like the divorce ability of women had caused these issues as though these were perfectly happy women who suddenly found out they could get a divorce and it got into their head and it twisted them around and it poisoned them against their husbands and it shattered families. And there was a lot written and said and filmed about divorce at the time. And for anyone who thinks that I'm making too much out of this, for anyone who thinks that I'm really overthinking this, Cronenberg had just gotten divorced from his wife. They had a bitter custody battle. He has out and out said that filming this movie was cathartic, and he based himself on, uh, Frank on himself, and he based Nola on his wife. So keep in mind, when I start digging into the symbolism of this and the psychology of this, Cronenberg has pretty much flat out said, yes, this is an allegory for my real marriage. That will be scary for reasons we'll get into. So, Frank takes Candace home and gives her a bath and finds out that she's got a number of scratches and bruises on her back. She's been abused during this weekend. And he goes straight back to Soma Free and he says, that's it. Visits are stopping. Period. Until you figure out why it is that my kid is getting hurt when she comes here we're done. Raglan says, you can't do that. Nola's at a critical period in her therapy. If you take away her child, she is going to have some sort of a disastrous mental outcome. Frank says, justifiably, I don't care. The child is in danger, and I don't endanger my child. And it starts to get into discussions of legal action. Raglan threatens legal action, which is probably idle, given what we later find out about what's going on at Soma Free. Frank goes back to his lawyer, who says that the courts are going to come down on the side of the mother pretty much universally, which was probably a pretty toxic thing to say then, and it's certainly become incredibly toxic, because there's a group of people out there calling themselves men's rights activists who basically claim feminism has gone too far. I hate that I even have to put those words in my own mouth. But one of the reasons they cite is that in custody battles, women tend to retain custody. Now, First, that is still a manifestation of sexism, stating that women have some essential quality that makes them uniquely suited to mothers that men do not have is still an imposition of gender roles onto men and women, and it is sexism. This is a very good example of how sexism is not good for either gender, even though it's clearly better for men than for women on a practical level. But, also, these tend to be men who weaponize the custody process as a way to hurt their wives through their children, so they're not great people to listen to the opinions of. So, I mean, it's the first episode, 
I'm kind of glad I got this out of the way so that I don't get any fans who later find out that my politics don't coincide with theirs. Men's rights activists are terrible, terrible human beings. And we're done with that conversation. And Frank, unfortunately, is not. He says, well, I'm not sending my kid back there. His lawyer says, look, you're going to need to find something to show that some bad things are happening at Soma Free because they can always come back. They can say that you're the one who hit the kid and you're blaming it on Soma Free. And Frank says, okay, I'll find something. How long do I have? He has a week. He has until the next visit. If he doesn't deliver Candace the next Friday, it's going to be very bad for all concerned unless he can find something to hold over Soma Free's head. There is, by the way, there's a lot more ableist mental health language here. There's a lot more discussion of psychoplasmics as a ripoff and Raglan as an emotional opportunist. And again, this is all free-floating anxiety in the culture at the time. And it's mainly important because it is worth noting that things have not changed that much since then, unfortunately, in terms of ableist language about mental health. So if you do have a problem with that, this may not be a movie for you. Uh, in the meanwhile, of course, Frank still has to go through his life. So he picks up his daughter from school. He is late. The teacher certainly seems to be of the opinion that he's late to pick up his daughter a lot. And he misses school meetings. This is one of those fears that shows up a lot in movies about parenting, especially about single parenting, this theme that dealing with your own issues, being overwhelmed by your own adult life, is hurting your kid. You'll see it in The Babadook, you'll see it in The Exorcist, you'll see it in tons of movies all over the spectrum. Anytime you get a parent, especially a single parent, there's this feeling of, Am I screwing up my kid's life already? And uh, I would add that's actually a line later in the movie is Frank talking to the teacher about have I screwed up my kid already by age six. So in order to further emphasize this theme, Frank drops off Candace at his at Candace's grandma's house, Nola's mom's house. Remember, Nola was abused as a child. Nola was beaten by her mother. And Frank is dropping off Candace with this abusive woman who is literally drinking while babysitting. I mean, she's got scotch in one hand and a sippy cup for the kid in the other, which we hope is not filled with scotch. And Frank is just blithe about it. And this is another place where... A a movie that is more focused on Nola and not on Frank might have looked at that and the fact that Frank either does not believe Nola abused or was abused by her mother or doesn't care. But this is not that movie. This is the movie where Nola is the crazy woman. Nola is the scary woman. And... That is where the next step is, is Nola and Raglan 
have a psychotherapy psychoplasmics session in at, at the Soma Free Institute, and we intercut between Nola and Raglan having this very intense discussion of Grandma's abuse of Nola, or, or Nola's mother's abuse of Nola, and something happening back at the house after Frank leaves. And obviously this is a little early in the horror movie to get a glimpse of what is doing it, but something is smashing up the house. It's a physical thing, it's not like a force like in the Evil Dead movies. But whatever it is, it smashes up the kitchen. And when Grandma goes to investigate, it smashes Grandma. It kills her with a tenderizing mallet. And we are very clearly led to believe by the juxtaposition of these scenes that this is somehow Nola's doing, even though we don't know how yet. And again, psychoplasmics, the formation of thoughts into physical energies. During this conversation, right before Grandma goes to find out what's in the kitchen, she does mention that Nola was in the hospital as a child for psychosomatic welts that would appear on her skin, usually hint-hint related to the abuse, although again, Grandma does not admit to the abuse. So Nola was already having this issue before psychoplasmics got involved. This isn't something Raglan is doing, this is something he's taking advantage of. The killer disappears, leaving child-sized handprints in blood, which the police completely and totally miss in their investigation of the house, despite them being really obvious on a white surface, and later they're shocked, absolutely shocked, that the killer turns out to be a child. 70s police work was not the best. Read the book Helter Skelter for some other examples of really obvious police work that just wasn't done. Uh, Candace is unsurprisingly traumatized by finding her grandmother's dead body in the kitchen and seeing mommy's murder baby doing the killing. Although, again, spoilers, we haven't gotten to the revelation that they are murder babies. The police, when they finally get there, when they finally get Candace settled, when they finally get Frank there to pick her up, they say that Frank should probably try to get Candace to talk about it, just because suppressing it is not going to be good for her. Meanwhile, well, not meanwhile at that point, it is, you know, several hours after the killing, but right after Frank settles Candace into bed, uh, he gets a phone call, which he misses, Okay, this is one of those things where I feel stupid explaining it because it feels really patronizing, but for those of you who weren't around in 1979, there weren't voicemails or answering machines, and if you missed a phone call, you just missed the phone call and you had to hope they'd call back? Frank misses the phone call. Turns out it was from Nola. Nola does not seem to understand that Frank has been told not to see her. She is getting the impression, either from Frank or from Raglan, or possibly from both, that he doesn't want to see her. And again, though, this is not presented as, as a bad thing that she's being gaslit by her therapist and her husband. It's just a sign of, oh, look, look, she's crazy. She's hysterical. 
again, this is, this is not, this is not a movie that is good to women. It is a emotionally intense movie. It is a movie with some amazingly dramatic scenes. It is a movie with some really intense acting. The scenes between Raglan and Mike and Raglan and Nola will leave you on the edge of your seat, even though there's no special effects happening. It's just so emotionally intense. They're ripping open these scabs. They're dealing with these psychic wounds. It is horrifying and strangely beautiful at the same time, but I gotta tell you, in good conscience, this is a movie that treats women as monsters. And in fact, the next scene, which is just some basic therapy, this is not murder monster therapy, this is just the regular kind of therapy, is Raglan being Nola's dad, and Nola confronting him about the fact that he knew that his wife was beating his daughter, and he did nothing. He said nothing. He didn't defend her. He was a passive accomplice in the horrible acts of women. And Nola straight up says in this scene, why didn't you beat mommy every time she tried to beat me? Which is really, really, really horrifying. Uh, Frank, by the way, right about this point in the film, finally photographs Candace's injuries. You would think he'd have done that sooner, but go figure. So, speaking of Grandpa, he flies in for the memorial. He and Grandma have been divorced for about ten years, which, again, this film is set when it was made. Grandma and Grandpa have been divorced for ten years. They would have been divorced immediately after the introduction of No Fault Divorce in Canada. So, if there's any doubt that this is a movie about the way that divorce exposes these fault lines in seemingly happy families... This is the generation before Frank and Nola's. As soon as they could get away from each other, they did. And it was Grandpa who did the divorcing. That is... It's it's revealed in dialogue fairly naturalistically. Grandpa says he still has a key to Grandma's house that... She always said that she was never going to change the locks so he could always come back, you know. So the, the idea is, again, that the woman of the, uh, of the family was a monster, the dad needed to get away, his sin was not defending the daughter. And this is very patriarchal, this is very patronizing. <laughs> There's a lot going on here. Uh... So he flies in for the funeral, they put him up in the hotel, Frank then goes to visit a character who we're just now seeing, Jan Hartog, who is a former patient of Raglan's, because remember, he's trying to dig up dirt on on psychoplasmics, and this guy has developed lymphatic cancer, it appears to be psychosomatic, it appears to be related to his therapy with Somafree. And again, this is a lot of fear of New Age medicine. This is a lot of fear of Eastern medicine. This idea of of foreign medicine concepts, foreign spiritual concepts as dangerous and, and tapping into forces that we don't necessarily understand and can't control, which ultimately that's one of the big themes of horror. It's 
one of those very classic themes, never call up of that which you cannot put down. Raglan is trying to become famous, he is trying to build his reputation, and he is relying on forces he does not understand and cannot control. And he's doing more harm than good. Hartog is in his own way a bit of a a bit of an eccentric. He's developed some very strange ideas about the lymphatic system. I think that Cronenberg is maybe trying to make a point here about the ways that a person, once they've done that headlong dive into unconventional therapies and outside-the-box ideas, no longer has a point of reference to judge the quality of an unconventional therapy or idea. So the same person who gets into acupuncture will then jump into homeopathic medicine and from there into any number of things, detoxes, juice cleanses, anti-vaxxing, etc., etc., because once you've decided that authority figures are wrong about this stuff, you don't have anything to compare it to. Um, Hartog is suing Raglan because he gave him cancer, and he knows he'll never be able to prove this in a court of law, but his primary interest in, is in creating terrible negative headlines for Raglan, psychoplasmics causes cancer, and it's kind of hinted at just around the edges that part of the reason Raglan is working so intensively with Nola is he knows that she's the perfect patient for his therapy, he knows she's near a big breakthrough, and he really wants a big triumph to counteract this. Again, that's the, the movie never does anything as unsubtle as directly stating it. The movie is very subtle in a lot of ways, in a lot of very clever ways. There's a lot of things that are hinted at around the edges, and you're allowed to kind of intuit them and interpolate pauses and subtle phrasings to pick up extra meanings. And people are good at that. It's, it's a skill that we all develop from childhood because we need to in order to interpret the world around us. And the good filmmakers, I think, know that it's a skill we have and they hint at things rather than stating them. In any event, at the end of this scene, Frank is offered by Hartog to, uh, to be put in touch with other patients who've had problems with Soma Free, and of course that's what Frank is looking for, so he agrees. Meanwhile, Grandpa goes up to Soma Free himself, very drunk, very angry that his daughter has not been told of her mother's death, will not be allowed out to see her funeral. Again, we're back into fears of manipulative therapists, the therapists who don't fix you to live a life on your own so much as they create a, a set of circumstances where you never have to have a life of your own. Eugene Landy will always be there to tell you what to do. Eugene Landy will always give you more pills. Eugene Landy was later disbarred by, uh, or stripped of his license by uh, the California Board of Medicine, just in case anyone thinks I'm being too hard on the man. Uh, So, Grandpa basically says, look, I'm coming back here, and if you don't have my daughter ready, I'm going to take her. And then he drives off, completely drunk, 
And Raglan's response is just, oh, no, it's okay. He's just blowing off some steam. It's the 70s, ladies and gentlemen. Woohoo! So, we've skipped ahead to the next day, and Frank is picking up Candace from school, and he's late again, and Ruth kind of is, you know, grumbling about it because she hasn't had dinner, and somewhat inappropriately, in my opinion... Frank offers to make her dinner back at his house. It is very clearly a pickup attempt from a guy who has a non-personal relationship with this woman. This is I, this is letting work and personal stuff mix in a way that I don't think is appropriate. But in the 1970s, you know, they did not have rules for that kind of thing. And certainly what rules they did have benefited the guy doing whatever he wanted and so the teacher who may be interested in him at least a little goes over they have some mild flirtation frank gives his side of nola's mental health issues which is 100 percent the women be crazy type of conversation and they're kind of hitting it off at this point again you know it's a very mild flirtation the date, putative date, near date, is interrupted by a call from Grandpa, who is drunk again, or possibly still, and he is maudlin, and he has gone back out to Grandma's house like they foreshadowed, and he wants Frank to come join him, and then they'll go to Soma Free together, and they'll get Nola, and they'll break her out, and... I'm not quite sure what the end game in all this is, but Frank says, absolutely, I'm right nearby, I'll be just 15 minutes, I'll come and get you, and then he hangs up and immediately tells the teacher, Ruth, that I need to go get this drunk old man out of that house, put him back in his hotel, can you watch the kid for like 45 minutes? And Ruth reluctantly agrees. It should surprise absolutely nobody that when Frank gets there, he finds that Grandpa's been murdered by the murder child. Not just the murder child in the sense of a murder child, but this specific one that killed Grandma, which has apparently been hiding in the house all this time, and the police completely missed it. Under the bed. It's been hiding under the bed. Like, the police are just kind of, ah, oh, do you think we should check under the bed for the killer? I don't know, man. I'd have to get down on my hands and knees and, like, it's really small. I mean, what could be down there? A kid? Let's just go. And it led to the death of Grandpa. Grandpa has been beaten to death by a pair of snow globes, as it happens. Frank gets into a fight with the murder child, and the murder child just drops dead. Frank doesn't understand why until they get to an autopsy, which Frank is allowed to sit in on, which is that of thing that random civilians are allowed to do because it seems a little weird although I will give the movie a lot of credit for not doing the paranoia thing of Frank being a suspect and the police thinking he must have done it even when it becomes blatantly obvious that he didn't which is a theme to a lot of horror movies because paranoia is scary and abusive authorities are scary, and those two things crop up a lot. So, uh, 
the point is, Frank is allowed to sit in on this autopsy, and it's a very, again, it's a very ableist sequence. There's a lot of ableist language. The kid has some issues, uh, cleft palate, um, no genitalia, things that certainly are atypical physically, but there's language thrown about, like deformities, defects, monstrosities. These are really uncomfortable, and they're in a lot of horror movies, so let's get this kind of out of the way. There is a strong theme in horror that physical, physical atypicality, physical, we'll say it, monstrosity, is a sign of moral defect. That if you are monstrous on the inside, you will be monstrous on the outside. And this is an ancient, ancient misapprehension. It goes back to times when medical lore was not understood at all, and surgery was not possible to fix some of the issues caused by some of these atypical features, and for you to believe that you were living in a just world where bad things simply didn't happen to people for no good reason, you had to believe that they must have done something to deserve this. They must have earned this physical monstrosity. And it's, you know, it's it's a horrible belief. It's something that I think you see in a lot of genres. How many spy movies and thrillers do you have a killer who's albinistic simply because, well, we need to show the audience that he's evil. You know, it's it's really terrible. And it's, you know, I mean, certainly it's going to crop up in body horror more than anywhere else, but it's badly handled here, it's got to be said. One of the things they find out is that the child has a yolk sack on their back, and it they've had it since they were born, and it's why they don't need to eat. They can't ingest nourishment. They just use up their yolk sack and then drop dead. They also find out the kid has no navel. No belly button was not put in an umbilicus. Uh, this is... It's significant for later, because obviously these are not children who are born through normal means. Bum, bum, bum. Oh, yes, and the, the pathologist is weirdly excited about this. Like, just super, super excited about this. Oh, and another atypical feature that is just really slamming you in the face with symbolism, given what we later find out about these kids. Their eyes have a different structure. So they only see things in black and white. Like, wow. Really? Really? Anyway, so Frank finally gets home. It's, you know, now it's like three hours of police interviews and attending autopsies and all this. And while he is gone, Nola calls back. Just like we all hope someone does back in the pre-voicemail era. But Ruth answers the phone and Nola jumps to a very wrong conclusion in a way that's going to be very bad for Ruth Mayer. Because she's like, why are you at my husband's house in the middle of the night? And she's like, look, I don't have to answer your questions, lady. Which is, again, the really wrong thing to say, but Nola really starts in with the antagonistic tone very quickly, and it's very easy to 
you know, imagine that you're just like, I don't want to deal with this. So uh, Nola freaks out, starts calling Ruth a bitch, a horrible person, a homewrecker. Ruth hangs up and does not pick up the phone again for the rest of the night. Ruth is done with Frank, done with all of this. When Frank gets up to see Candace, she's understandably a little bit upset about all this. She's finally starting to unrepress the memories of the murder child, and Frank is like, hey, no, it's okay, it's okay, murder kid is dead. It's just regular kids from now on. Woohoo! Movie's over, right? No. No, movie's not over. Raglan evicts all of his other patients. He's devoting himself full-time to Nola because, A, he needs her better very quickly, um, and, B, he needs that big success I was talking about. There's reasons why he needs her better quickly. We'll, we'll get to that. Um, he also starts packing heat, which, given, again, what we're going to find out, very sensible. Uh, Mike, from the beginning of the movie, is one of those evicted patients. He goes to Jan Hertog, who goes to Frank. Frank says, hey, you need to come find this out. Raglan's doing something weird. He's shipping out all of the patients except your wife. He's a little bit weirded out by that. But meanwhile, after he's dropped his kid off to school and gone for this interview with Hertog, meanwhile, there are two extra kids in the kindergarten class. And unsurprisingly, they look just like the murder kid from earlier. They murder Ruth with mallets, which apparently she has in a kindergarten class, because that's totally something you want to give to five-year-olds who have not developed any kind of moral compass yet. Hard, wooden mallets capable of crushing bone. And then they kidnap Candace, and they take her back to Soma Free. Nola is, uh, is, is feeling really relieved. Like, all of her stress is gone now, and she doesn't know why, but she doesn't feel threatened by Ruth anymore. She's very happy. She doesn't know that a murder has happened. She is not commanding the kids, but they picked up on her hatred. Winton did the killing. She, in turn, picked up on the fact that Ruth was dead, and subconsciously it's all happening under her head and it's a major breakthrough this is how psychoplasmics apparently is going to work you just manifest your anger at somebody in the form of murder babies they kill the people you hate and then your psychological problems with them are solved foolproof frank finds out that his daughter's been kidnapped finds out that ruth is dead doesn't know what's going on he finds a headline which says police seek dwarf killers which i absolutely love because there are two ways to read that and one of them is that there are dwarves killing people and the other is that there are people killing just dwarves it's the most ludicrously specific serial killer ever um then mike mentions that there are kids up at soma free and frank finally goes, oh, of course, that's what's going on. Raglan's got kids at Soma Free that are murderous, that are atypical in some physical and mental way. He's got my wife taking care of them, because, again, that's what Mike tells him, is that 
there's the kids up in the shed where his wife is staying. And he goes racing up there to get his daughter back. He surprises Raglan, gets the drop on him, shoves him up against a wall. Raglan's like, okay, look, I'm not a bad guy. I'm really, really not. I'm trying to help your wife. But it turns out that my therapy causes her to manifest murder babies. This is not what I planned, but there's like a dozen of them now, and they're fully grown, at least fully grown kids. They're not, you know, they're not babies, they're not infants, they're about like seven or eight year olds, Candace's age, maybe a little older. And they pick up on Nola's emotions. If she's mad, they're mad at whoever she's mad at, and then they go and murder them. So... Raglan is kind of just, well, the only way out of it is through it. We just have to solve all of Nola's psychological problems so that she doesn't get mad anymore, and then the murder babies will all be calm and happy. Oh, and by the way, if you go up to get Candace, they will sense it. They will transmit their anger and anxiety to Nola. Nola will get angry. Nola will get stressed. Nola will rip Candace apart. So... Plan B, as suggested by Raglan, <laughs> is, and, and Raglan, it should be mentioned, is surprised at Ruth's, Ruth's death. He is not orchestrating deaths. He is not doing all this to kill people. He doesn't even necessarily know when the killings happen. He picks it up the same way the rest of the characters do by reading the papers. He's just in over his head. So Raglan's plan B here is Frank will go in. Frank will talk to Nola. Frank will tell her, I'm coming back to you. Everything's better. We're going to be a happy family again. It's all going to be so wonderful and things will be exactly the way they were. While Raglan sneaks in to the placated kids who will be picking up on Nola's calm mood and get Candace and get her out of there. Again, Nola, when she sees Frank, is surprised that he came to visit her. Again, she's talking like she was told he didn't want to see her. And there's not really a clear sign of where this gaslighting came in, but she's clearly being gaslit. And again, it's clearly being presented as a flaw in her and not the people that, uh, that, that have been manipulating her. Frank insists that, no, 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 this is real. He loves her. He wants to be with her. She's like, I don't know if you're ready for this. I've been going through some pretty weird shit, which, in fairness, she really, really has. Frank is like, no, no, no. Wherever you go, I go. I'm your husband. I want to be with you. Show me this new strange adventure you're going on. Show me this new actualized self of yours. And she's like, okay. And she parts her robe. And she's got this huge external birth sac slash uterus that she lifts up while it's still attached to her body and tears it open with her teeth and nails to reveal another murder baby. <coughs> and this is the point where we kind of mention that another big thing about the 70s is that the role of the husband in childbirth was changing. 
if you watch old movies and old TV shows, you'll see this all the time. The role of the woman is to go into another room. The role of the man is to sit there and pace anxiously back and forth with a box of cigars in his hand, waiting to be told that the baby's been born and he can see it. In the 60s and 70s, this started to change. Men started to be encouraged to go into the delivery room to help with the birth, to help with the breathing techniques that were becoming popular, Lamas, to witness the actual biological act of birth. And for some men, this was viewed as perfectly normal, even kind of transcendent. Uh, Alan Moore says he was so changed by viewing his wife's childbirth that he included a childbirth scene in Marvel Man slash Miracle Man to try to convey some of the wonder and majesty of the moment. But other men were really freaked out because, ew, there's blood and there's women's vaginas. And in light of that, this is so obviously a sequence of phobias that men have about women in childbirth that it's almost a parody. It is almost Frank going, ew, blood, ew, vaginas, ew, freaky childbirth thing, ew, what's that stuff that's coming out? It's it's almost funny, but it's also kind of very horrifying. And especially the tearing open with the teeth and nail part. And so Nola gets out the baby. She licks it clean like a mother cat with a kitten in a scene that is, gotta say, it's very disturbing. And it was Samantha Egger's idea. The actress was like, oh, yeah, I've, I've have cats and dogs at my house and they've given birth to litters and they always lick the babies clean. And Cronenberg was like, you are clearly a woman after my own heart. <laughs> and and immediately included it. Um, obviously, though, Frank is freaked. Frank is going, ew, blood, ew, vaginas, ew, blood on the baby, ew, ew, ew. And he can't hide it. And Nola gets pissed. Because, again, this is this is all very much a psychosocial expression of men's fears of women. He is afraid of his crazy wife, even though her mental health issues are all entirely relatable. He is afraid of her hurting the kid. And, you know, again, in in actual relationships, abuse is perpetrated by both parents. But Frank is... 100% the epitome of the saintly, blameless man who is just trying to hold it all together. That was a staple of movies of this era because they were being written and produced and directed by men. And in this case, it gets worse than that because the murderer kids all come to life. They all attack Raglan. Raglan shoots a couple of them which is a rare instance of kid killing in a horror movie. Normally that doesn't happen, and it is very shocking. Cronenberg is good at shock. I know I'm getting into the politics of this movie. I know it is very hard to hide the fact that I don't like the politics of this movie. But the emotional effects of shock and horror are very, very prevalent and prominent and well-executed. 
And just as things seem to be getting very bad for Candace and Raglan is dragged down by the murder babies and torn to pieces by the murder babies and Candace hides in a locked room and the murder babies are pounding on the door. I shouldn't call them murder babies. They're murder six-year-olds. They're, they're older than murder toddlers even. But murder baby just trips off the tongue in such a delightful way. If I had a band, it would be the murder babies. And Frank saves the day by strangling his ex-wife to death. I cannot stress enough that this is a scene that is creepy, but it's creepy for all the wrong reasons. It is intended by Cronenberg to be creepy because poor saintly Frank is forced, absolutely forced, I say, to kill his wife Nola despite the fact that he's done nothing but love her and her love has been repaid with nothing but scorn and insanity. Oh, poor, poor Frank. It is actually creepy because David Cronenberg wrote a whole movie about strangling his ex-wife and being entirely justified in doing so. The creepy part comes from the fact that the filmmaker thinks you're supposed to approve of this behavior. It's not the right kind of creepy. It is not the intent of the director, and it's really, really, really horrifying. And look, this is kind of one of my hobby horses. I may return to this more than once. But when you see material like this that's problematic, it doesn't mean you have to hate the movie. The Brood has a lot to recommend it. It's, as I say, it's emotionally intense horror. It's visceral horror. It is the kind of thing that will stick with you long after the movie ends. But it's very problematic. It's got a lot of misogyny. It is, at its core, a misogynist movie. And again, not reading too much into this, David Cronenberg said filming the scene where his wife gets strangled to death was really cathartic for him. And if you want to like this movie, you do, I think, have a responsibility to engage with that. You can either say, look, I don't like that. I like other things about this movie. I really like Oliver Reed's performance. I really like that it's got a lot to say about the way that therapists can create dependence uh, in their patients if they're not careful. I really like the way that it elegantly and eloquently captures a period of intense social breakdown. I really think that Nola, for all that she is not treated as a focus of it, is abused. And her abuse is significant, and it matters. It is acknowledged as something that has hurt her and will continue to hurt her for the rest of her life. You can also try to find an alternate explanation. I don't think that's really possible in this particular case, because again, Cronenberg is on record saying, oh yeah, Nola was totally my ex-wife, and I filmed someone strangling her to death because it just felt really good. But you could try to form a redemptive reading of the film. But what I don't think anyone should do is simply try to say, no, there's no subtext to this scene. 
it's just a movie, turn off your brain and watch the pretty pictures. Because I feel like that does more of a disservice to David Cronenberg than saying, hey, it's creepy misogynist. You know, David Cronenberg wanted you to think about this. Every filmmaker wants you to think about their material. They want something that will stay with you. To find out that you're just like, no, I watched it, I was entertained by it, and then it ended and I never thought about it again, I think that would hurt him. I think that hurts you when you do it that way. So hopefully, if, if I take away one thing here for everyone who listens, all zero of you right now, it is think about movies. Engage with the material. It's rewarding. It's meaningful. It can sometimes teach you things about yourself. And that's me off my hobby horse. Uh, we'll just real quick wrap up the movie. The murder kids all drop dead. Frank gets Candace. Frank drives away with Candace. And the last shot is closing in on Candace's arm. Candace's arm where, surprise, surprise, she too is developing psychosomatic welts just like her mother. Because that's the thing about abuse, is the effects that it has, they stay with you, they stay with your kids, they are passed down generationally. And Cronenberg doesn't offer a solution, but that is something that I think is meaningful about it, is this idea that you need to care about your kids. You need to try to provide the best environment you can for them so that they don't wind up messed up adults. And, uh, and that's The Brood, again. It's pretty much straight up a, a divorced man's revenge fantasy on his ex-wife, not just revenge for, you know, in the physical sense, but in the sense of emotional validation. She really is crazy. She really is abusive to our kids. She's really everything I said she was. And she deserves to die. It's rough stuff. Will I be keeping this movie on my shelf? No. No, I don't think I will. I think I'll probably sell it back to the half-price books I got it from. Come to think of it, I don't think I ever explained that. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> it's been a long night, but uh, yeah, it's called Half Price Horror because every single horror film I'm going to review, I'm going to get from Half Price Books. I am going to let, like those UHF stations I loved so much as a kid, I am going to let curation be done through the manner of potluck and randomness. And hey, Maybe I'll turn you in on some movies that you would never have seen otherwise that you'll really like. Maybe, hopefully, I'll just entertain you. Maybe you'll think about it afterwards. And uh, next time, I will be digging into A Nightmare on Elm Street, but not that Nightmare on Elm Street. Yep, I found a copy of the 2010 remake... And we will take a look at it together and see whether there are any insights to be gleaned from the act of remaking a movie that really got it right the first time. Talk to you then. <laughs>